Uh, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to the Old Testament today, and I'm very excited about that fact. Um, just really blessed to bring the word to you guys this morning, and we're going to do that. We're going to look at a passage in 2 Kings chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. 2 Kings 6, verse 8. I love the Old Testament, and I love to see uh, God on display as he uh, just unfolds his plan, as he reveals more about him. And um, just teaches us so much. Uh, This is almost three quarters of uh, God's revelation to us. And so we're going there today. um, And just a a blessing for me to take you there. Uh, Let's pray and ask the Lord to just bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much that you are uh, an awesome God. That you are our Savior. You are the one who has uh, stepped into the world and, and come to bring salvation, to bring reconciliation, to grant us mercy and kindness. Lord, we thank you that even though we were once your enemies, uh, we are now yours. We're your children. And we get the privilege of knowing you forever and being with you for all of eternity. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we just pray that you would open our eyes, help us to see what you would have us to see. And, and more than that, help us to live this out, Lord. There are truths here that you want us to grasp and hold tightly to and to live out in our lives. I pray you'd help us to do that. We can't do that apart from your help and your enabling, Lord. So go before us. Help me to bring the word in clarity and with power. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 2 Kings chapter 6. If you want to give a title of the message, it's Seeing Your Enemies Through God's Eyes. Seeing Your Enemies Through God's Eyes. Here's the truth. If you live for the Lord, you will have enemies. If you live for the Lord, you and I, if we live for him, will have enemies in this life. That's a promise from Jesus himself. And in John 15:18 and following, we read, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Paul picks up this same idea in Philippians 3.18 where he talks about Enemies, enemies of Christ. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And if you and I have embraced or received salvation through the gospel of the cross, if we've put, if we've identified ourselves with the one who hung on that cross, then you and I can expect, it's not a matter of if, but when we will encounter opposition and resistance and attack from those who do not know Christ and who are actively opposed to him. If you live for the Lord, you will have enemies. And we all have experienced this or will experience this in our lifetime in various and in in different ways. Um, Often that can happen in our marriage. Your spouse, as you you long to live for the Lord, as you seek to, to put yourself under his lordship, and as you're transformed more and more into his image, one spouse can, be, can find themselves opposing another. Jesus said, if, if you follow him, even a man, the, those in his own household will be his enemies. 
And it can happen in our families, among relatives. Even in the church, we can encounter opposition and attack. We can, we can find enemies even here, sadly, in the walls of the church and among the people of the church. And as pastors faithfully preach and teach and counsel, or as brothers and sisters exhort and encourage and hold others accountable, there can be opposition at times. There can be gossip at times. There can be backbiting and fighting at times. Not to mention other places where we can encounter this in our workplace, whether it's a coworker or worse, a boss or supervisor, who because of the stand we've taken, because of the way we've sought to live our lives, both at home and at work, and standing for what is right and doing what's, what's honorable, what's, what glorifies God, we can immediately find ourselves in situations where we're being opposed and we are facing an enemy. And it can go on and on from there. Missionaries experience it. All of us will at one point experience this. And Jesus and our, and our Lord wants us to, to see, he wants us to begin to see our enemies through his eyes. God wants you and I today to have our eyes opened to, to seeing our enemies the way that he sees them and the way he longs for us to see them. In this passage this morning, in it, we're going to find three truths that God wants us to see in the face of our enemies. When we're facing opposition, when we're facing attack, when our enemies are coming at us, there's three things that God wants us to see through this beautiful, amazing narrative. And this is the theme. I've I've entitled the message, Seeing Your Enemies, and there's things that God wants us to see because that's the theme of the passage. The verb, to see, happens several times, six times in the passage. It drives the narrative. This is the thread that weaves through the whole story, this idea of seeing Seeing your enemies rightly. Now, I want to give you some background. I want to set the stage for. Sorry, I want to set the stage for our story. Uh, the main character is Elisha, the prophet. We're roughly somewhere around 850 BC. This is after David. This is after Solomon. This is in the age of the prophets. And you've heard of Elijah and Elisha, the one who succeeded him. And Elisha is on the scene. He is the man of God, and he is delivering uh, and 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 uh, living out his prophetic ministry. Um, to the kingdom of the north. Now, Elisha is our main character in this, in this sense, in that he exemplifies the one who sees his enemies with God's eyes. Throughout this story, Elisha is the one who will see rightly. This is the one who we want to follow and learn from. And so get ready to grab onto his prophetic coattails as we follow the narrative, as we, as we learn from him. It's interesting, he's the only one that's mentioned by name. Everybody else is the king of Syria or the king of Israel or the servant or the soldier. He's the only one who's named and our attention should be riveted to him. And obviously, without saying God is the ultimate main character, even beyond Elisha's, God is going to begin to move and show us amazing things through the story. Well, let's get started and we'll pick it up in verse 8. And it says, Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. Now, here's just a quick map and some backstory. Okay? Again, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided because of his sin. We have the part of the kingdom was torn away from him, and Israel was, was the northern kingdom, and Solomon and his descendants remained active in the southern kingdom of Judah. And you can see them. Judah's in blue, and Jerusalem is the capital of, of um, Judah. And to the north is where our story takes place in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And the capital was Samaria at that time. Now it says in verse 8 that once when the king of Syria or the king of Aram in some of your translations was warring against Israel. And if you go, look up to the top right, you'll see Damascus, which is the capital of Syria or the, the kingdom of Aram. And what was going on here was that these, these 
these guys, Israel and, and Aram or Syria, had been back and forth just battling in times of, of peace, in times of war. And here in our story, there's this time of war. And what's happening is that the king of Syria was poking at or jabbing at Israel. He was taunting them by sending in these raiding teams, these small raiding teams, basically Syrian special forces, these commandos who would go in and they would position themselves in some place to attack some poor village or town. And, and they would abduct people and they would steal property. And then they would bail back over the border. This was Border Wars Season 1, before Mexico and the United States. It was Syria and Israel. Now, notice... Uh, what the king says, he says, at such and such a place shall my camp be. In other words, he was meeting with his servants or his military advisors and his commanders. And he was saying, look, go here and attack, attack and then get out. And we have actually a record of this, of this happening. And if you go back one chapter to chapter five, verse two, it says, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. It was this little girl that would eventually tell Naaman, who was the commander of the Syrian army at that time, about Elisha and the fact that he could heal him because Naaman was a leper. And the story unfolds where he meets Elisha and is, is miraculously for, uh, healed of his leprosy and just becomes a changed man. So the, this is an example of the raids, this kind of border warring that was going on, this, these, these raiding teams that the, the, uh, the king of Syria was sending in. Now, this was happening, but there was only one problem at this point, and that was when we find it in verse 9. Notice this. But the man of God, Elisha, sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. You see, the, the problem was Elisha knew the plans of the king of Syria because God was revealing them to him. And Elisha, being the faithful man of God, the faithful prophet that he was, he was passing on these revelations to the king of Israel. He was being faithful to do that. And Elisha would tell the king the exact locations where the Syrians were going to set up shop in order to raid some poor town. Notice what he says. He says, beware that you do not pass this place. Don't pass over. Don't neglect this spot. This is where they're going down to. So put some guys here. And that's exactly what uh, would happen. Notice verse 10. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, Elisha used to warn him so that the king of Israel saved himself there more than once or twice. The king of Israel listened to the intelligence that Elisha was giving him, the war council, and he would send a large troop presence to the exact place where Elisha said the Syrians were going to camp out in order to raid. And sure enough, he would obviously surprise them and thwart them off, and the Syrian commandos would head back across the border unsuccessful. Uh, and thus it says that the king of Israel was preserved. He and his people were being preserved. And it happened more than once or twice. This prophetic intelligence came numerous times. Now notice what happens in verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Here's the commander-in-chief of Syria and it says he was greatly troubled. Now, this is not like Herod when he was, you know, people are telling him, hey, someone's been born king of the Jews. And he's like, what? What's going on? And, you know, this was the word here literally means stormed. This guy was enraged. The king of Syria was ticked because of these these defeats and the, these surprise attacks that he was that he was encountering in this unsuccessful military camp, military campaign that he was uh, endeavoring to undertake. 
And here's what's, here's what's going on. He suspects that there's a traitor in his midst, in his inner circle, that's somehow leaking information to Israel. And so he rounds up all his military advisors, and he's basically saying, who among you is pro-Israeli? Tell me. Okay? Now, I love verse 12. This is just hilarious. Uh, it's always the guy at the top. Like in the sitcom, it's always the boss who has no idea what's going on. And sure enough, this is what happens. So one of his servants said, um, so he's, he's asking, will you not show me who is, who is for the king of Israel? And one of the commanders comes up and says, uh, none of us, my lord, uh, O king, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your own bedroom. Now, um, one of the guys comes up and he basically blurts out or, or, or you know, gives the startling revelation. And rather than a mole in their midst, it's the fault of Elisha, the prophet. He's telling him, he knows everything you're saying in the privacy of your own room, O king. Uh, now, it's one thing to be outsmarted in war. It's another thing to have your enemies know all of your private life. Uh, and if he was enraged because of his commandos not having success, now you can imagine he's really, really upset. And he wants to get this Elisha and stop, stop him, take him out at any, at any, you know, in any way he can. Notice verse 13. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. He immediately assembles a recon team to go and find out Elisha's location. I don't know if they actually went out or if they were on their way. And they're like, oh, we actually know that he's in Dothan too. Uh, but either way, they tell him he's in Dothan. Elisha's in Dothan. And so we see at this point in the story by verse 13 that Elisha has made himself an enemy by being faithful to God as a prophet, doing what he was supposed to be doing, giving, taking the word of God that God was giving him and passing it along to the king of Israel. He's made a great enemy. Now notice verse 14. So he sent the king of Syria, sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. The king of Syria wastes no time. He spares no expense. And I just find this very ironic. Here he is sending in these, you know, SEAL Team 6 kind of special forces commandos, these small raiding parties to go after Israel and poke them and jab them and, and you know, pick on these little towns. But when this guy finds out what he's doing, you know, and what he's saying at every moment, uh, he says, I'm going to go after this guy with everything I've got. And it looks like from the text that he's assembled a humongous army. He's sending in the infantry, the cavalry, the artillery, and think hundreds, probably even more thousands of troops, horses, and chariots going after one guy, Syrian public enemy number one, Elisha. Okay, and they arrive at Dothan at night and they surround the city. And if you live for the Lord, you will have enemies and they will spare no expense and they will often be very daunting and seem very overwhelming. And the question is, how will you react when facing these kinds of enemies? Well, here's the first thing that God wants us to see. And that is that God is more powerful than our enemies and he is always present with us. God is more powerful than our enemies and he, Yahweh, is always present with us. And we see this in verses 15 to 17. Now a quick note, and we're going to go back to a map because <clears throat> I want to show you a little bit about Dothan, this town where Elisha was. Okay, here's the capital city of Samaria and about 10 miles to the north is the, the small town 
of Dothan. And so up in Damascus, the king of Syria dispatches this great army and they swoop down and they come and they cross the Jordan somewhere. And then now they're setting up. Now, here's Dothan. Here's a picture of Dothan. And uh, not much has changed there in a couple of years. Uh, still the same old hill. Uh, but the town was on top of the hill. And if you can imagine, uh, the town is on top of the hill and there, it's about 300 feet off the valley floor. And there's a valley all around the city or the mountain, the hill of, of Dothan. And then there's greater hills surrounding that area that are taller and higher. You can look down on the city. And here's Dothan from uh, courtesy of Google Maps. And you can see it there. It's kind of, kind of hard to see the 3D effect. But there's the hill and the valleys all around it. And here's what, what probably happened. The troops begin to surround at night the town. And so they position themselves on hills high enough to look down on the city and basically surround the city. Now, you can imagine the king of Syria said, get this guy and don't come back until you do. And so these guys are going to position themselves in a way where Elisha and his servant do not get out of town. And so they can see down on the city. If you were in the city looking out, you would see them. And uh, in fact, that's what happens in the next verse. Notice verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, we'll, we'll discover later in the story that Elisha's servant is a young boy at this time. It's not Gehazi, who was in the previous story, who actually incurred leprosy and probably was banished. But this young boy comes out and it says he, he was early to rise, literally early to rise in the Hebrew. Now, I don't think he was, you know, grabbing the paper and, and putting a cup of, or pot of coffee on and just happened to be up early this morning. Uh, think about this with me for a second. Elisha knows everything that the king of Syria is planning, saying, doing. And uh, don't you think that he knew he was coming after him? Uh, and Elisha probably uh, disclosed this information to this young boy. And you can imagine this young boy, um, dream, you know, the night before. I don't think he's getting much sleep. Uh, and so it's no, no surprise that he's up early. And he goes outside to kind of take a peek at what might be outside. And sure enough, to his horror, is the sight of the Syrian army surrounding the town. And he immediately panics. He says, alas, basically, literally, oh, no, it's a cry in the face of fear. What shall we do, my master? Now, Elisha's servant... Oh, wait, we're gonna, uh, Elisha's servant is responding the way that most of us do when we are initially confronted with our enemies. And that's, he was paralyzed with fear. Whenever we're attacked, whenever we're opposed, when something has happened to us, there's this initial reaction of just paralysis and fear. What's going on here? And it was more than that. This boy was ultimately blind to the truth that God is more powerful than our enemies and he's always present with us. He couldn't see that fact. He wasn't seeing these enemies through God's eyes. Now notice what Elisha says to him. And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You see, Elisha exhorts him and then he evangelizes him with good news in the face of this nightmarish situation. He says, Do not be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha was declaring that God was not only more powerful than their enemy, but he was with them. He was present with them. And Elisha's servant wasn't getting it. He's like doing the math and he's, you know, the town's asleep and it's him and 
And Elisha, and he's like, uh, two is not more than these guys all around us. Uh, he still cannot see these realities. And so Elisha prays for him. But notice Elisha for a second. Here's the Syrian army, and they're coming specifically after him. Imagine you are under attack. And, and this whole entire, man, this, this, this elite team of fighters and commandos and killers are after you. And notice Elisha, he's totally calm. I imagine he got a great night's sleep the night before, just like Peter did in Acts 12. Peter's about to be killed that night, and where do we find Peter in the, in the jail? Asleep. So what the, the angel has to wake him up. When, when, we, when we know that God is present and that he's more powerful, we can relax. And that's where we find Elisha. He's calm. He's in a spirit of peace. He's totally trusting in the Lord. Now notice his prayer. Notice verse 17. It says, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Yahweh, please Open his eyes that he might see. Even though Elisha could see, his servant was still blind. And so he prays that God, that he would see God's overwhelming power and his overwhelming presence. And this word for open, to open the eyes, it means to open to something which exceeds normal human powers of observation. Something that's there, but we can't see it. And it, it's amazing. This... this um, this prayer shows us something. It teaches us. By the way, in addition to seeing as a theme, prayer is woven all through the story. And here's the first of three of prayers from Elisha. But notice this. When we can't see clearly, it is through prayer that we can see afresh. When we can't see clearly, it is through prayer that we can see afresh. And often, we can't see. When we can't see, it's the prayers of our brothers and sisters who make that makes the difference and that we need so desperately. Here's Elisha and he's praying for his servant that his eyes might be open. Elisha could see what was going on. His servant could not. And God answers Elisha's prayer. Notice the rest of verse 17 and it says, So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. At once, the boy could see this angelic host, the army of the living God, surrounding them. And I imagine it was something like this. Before, I imagined they're in some bowl or they're on some hill or whatever, and it's the army around them. And then above that, on a, on a greater rim or on a canyon, kind of like you know, the Indians surrounding somebody, it's, it's, it's this, this massive army of God, and they're about to swoop down. That's not what it is at all. According to the text, it's really clear that the army of God, the living God, this, this host of horses and chariots of fire was surrounding them, was hedging them in and protecting them. Very much like uh, what we find in Exodus chapter 14. Sorry, hold on. Yeah, notice, notice, notice the language real quick in verse 17. Um, I love this. The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The man who they were after was being totally protected, he and his servant in the town, because God was around Elisha. He was surrounding him, very much like in Exodus. Notice this, the angel of the Lord God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. This is what we saw in Exodus. Notice it also brings up this, this beautiful picture of just being protected and encamped around from Psalm 34, verses 7 and 8. The angel of, the, of Yahweh, the Lord himself, encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
And this vision, so, so here's the army of the living God, and, 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 it, and this army with Yahweh present is surrounding Elisha and, and is protecting them. And it's a, it's, it's a similar imagery as we saw earlier in Second Kings chapter 2 when Elijah is taken to heaven and Elisha witnesses this. It, notice, it says, and as they, both of them, went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah's walking along, Elisha's behind him and all of a sudden this heavenly army comes down and encircles Elijah so that Elisha can no longer get to him and is separated from him and it's in that whirlwind that Elijah is taken into heaven. And that's what's happening here. What the servant saw was a more numerous force. He saw the army of the living God and the angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself, was in their midst. And this was a divine force that was no match for any Syrian army. And it's not like they just arrived either. They had been there the whole time. We have a God whose arm can smash the greatest enemies, a God who's mighty to save. We have a God whose forces continually surround us, whether you're in the car, whether you're traveling abroad, whether you're at work, you are surrounded by God and his angelic forces. And we don't think about that. We don't see that on a daily basis, but that's the reality. That's the reality. We are hemmed in before and behind. We are protected everywhere we go. We have a God not only who, who, who hems us in that way with his forces, but a God who he himself dwells with us and in us. This is Emmanuel, the God who is always and constantly with us. And so when our enemies confront us, when we're assaulted, we don't have to fear. There's no need to fear because God is more powerful than our enemies and he's always, always present with us. And whether it's you facing a boss at work who is threatening to have you fired or whether you are evangelizing or doing missions and you're dealing with a hostile crowd or whether it's a neighbor or a relative taking you to court, suing you and money-hungry attorneys are surrounding you. Whatever the, whatever the situation, whatever the enemy, God is more powerful than anything you'll ever come against and he's always with you. He's always with us. Well, there's a second thing that God wants us to see And that's this, that God sovereignly controls our enemies to accomplish his glorious purpose. God sovereignly controls our enemies to accomplish his glorious purpose. God continually, constantly has our enemies in his hands and he moves them wherever and however he wants to accomplish everything that he wants to accomplish. Excuse me. And now this is the way we would expect the story to go. And when, verse 18, and when the Syrians came down against Elisha, uh, the army of the Lord swallowed the Syrians and slaughtered them with a great slaughter. And Elisha and his servant rejoiced in the Lord as they skipped along the road to Samaria. Right? That's the way we'd want the story or think the story might, might go. But that's exact, that's not what happened at all. The great army of Yahweh that this young boy had seen never lifted a finger, never fired an arrow, never moved or advanced with a chariot at all. And that does not negate God's power and his presence. But it does remind us of this fact that often God will not always respond with overwhelming force. He will not always respond the way that you and I would want him to. And I think about this when I think about the original readers who were who were holding first and second Kings originally one doc one one work as they read it for the first time. These were the people who who were part of the Babylonian captivity. These were people for some who were a generation that were that were born and who died in the clutches of their enemies. They never lived in the land of Israel, and for for their whole life they lived 
under the, the power and, and the hand of one of the greatest regimes of all history, the Babylonian Empire. And imagine what these readers were thinking as they're in, in, in that situation. God wanted them to know, as he wants us to know today, that he is more powerful than even one of the greatest kingdoms of all time and that he was with them even when they were not in the land of Israel. He is with us as well. And not only that, but he is the one who was holding the Babylonian Empire in his hand, moving it however and wherever he wanted it to go to accomplish all that he was doing. God is overwhelmingly powerful and present, and because of that we needn't fear, but God is also completely sovereign and in total control of our enemies. And because of that, you and I can stand back, we can stand in awe and watch and and see how God will direct events for our good and for his glorious purposes. In this sense, like we've been learning in Romans, God is for us even in the face of our enemies. He is moving things, he he is shaping things, he's doing a million things behind the scenes that we can't even see. And he's in total control the whole time. Notice verse 18. Notice what happens in the story, this, uh, this unexpected twist. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. The Syrian army begins to advance from the hills, come down into the plain and ascend to the mountain. And as they do that, they're intent on attacking Dothan and seizing Elisha. And instead of using overwhelming force against them, God instead uses the powerful prayer of one man to do something equally amazing and supernatural. Elisha begins to pray for the second time. And he asks God this. He asks God basically to thwart the plans of his enemies. And for the second time, God answers Elisha. The Syrian army was supernaturally blinded. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here. Because the word for blindness here is not the typical Hebrew word for blindness, which means a loss of sight. This word for blindness only occurs one other place, and that's in Genesis 19.11, where the, the men of Sodom were advancing on Lot's guests, the two angels who had come to visit him, and they were seeking to attack them, uh, to do harm to them. And it's, it's a word which literally means to dazzle or to bedazzle. And it speaks of a dazed mental condition. Here's what God did. He answered Elisha's prayer and he struck these men and threw them into mental confusion. Where in, even in seeing, they could no longer see. They couldn't assess their situation and they didn't understand what was going on. You see, because God sovereignly controls our enemies to accomplish his glorious purposes, when faced with our enemies' assaults, we can pray that their plans would be thwarted and that God's plans would be accomplished. Notice that Elisha just didn't stand there doing nothing. He engaged the enemy and he began by engaging them in prayer. And he said, Lord, thwart their plans and make your plans come through. And when we're in the midst of our enemies, when we're being attacked, when we're being persecuted, this is what God wants us to do, to engage the enemy and begin by praying as we, as we trust that God is sovereign, then to pray that and say, Lord, you have a plan. I know you're doing something Make that plan come to pass and thwart what these men want to do to me or to others who they're, they're against. This is a fresh reminder of the power of prayer and how God uses prayer to accomplish his glorious purposes. Notice verse 19 as the story continues. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Elisha now approaches his enemies. He not only engages them in prayer, but he comes face to face with them and speaks to them and utters what at first appears to be really confusing words. 
And he's not lying or being dishonest at all. What, what Elisha is saying is something more amazing. This is what he's doing. He's alluding to the fact that this is not the situation, nor is this the place in which God wants to unfold his plan and accomplish his purpose. This is not the way or the place where God is going to make things go down. What Elisha is revealing is that God, and not the Syrian army, is in total control. And he will determine how and where things ultimately play out in this story and in Elisha's lives. And Elisha concludes by ordering the men to follow him so that he can take them to the man whom they're seeking, the way that God has determined that it will happen. And so Elisha leads them 10 miles south, about four, a four-hour hike to the capital city of Samaria. And I used to imagine the story as like, you know, Elisha's like holding hands with the guys and they're all kind of, you know. Uh, but that's not the way it happened. They, they, they know where they're going and yet they don't even know where they're going. They don't know what's happening. God has thrown them into confusion. Notice what happens in verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. All through the story, people can see and yet they can't see. These men could see it, but they didn't realize what was going on. Amazingly, God was accomplishing his plan through his sovereign control over Elisha's enemies. And what began as the Syrian army surrounding Elisha at Dothan has now turned into the Syrian army being surrounded by Elisha and the king of Israel and the whole Israel army in Samaria. You see, we can be fearless because our God is more powerful than our enemies and he's always present with us. And we can stand in awe as we pray that our enemies' plans would be thwarted and that God's plans would be realized because our God sovereignly controls our enemies to accomplish his glorious purposes. There's a final truth here that God wants us to see with our eyes. And that's this. God wants us. He wants to use us. He wants us to become agents of blessing. He wants to use us to surround and to overwhelm our enemies with his mercy and kindness. God wants to use you. God wants to use me to surround our enemies, those who would oppose us, those who speak evil against us, those who persecute us, to surround them and to overwhelm them with his mercy and kindness. God is always up to something. He's always doing good things because he has a perfect and glorious plan. And often God does what we're going to see at the end of this story. He preserves us from the wickedness of our enemies and from the evil intentions of those who are against us so that he can eventually use it, ultimately use us to bless them. And God has sovereignly turned the tables on the Syrians and has perfectly positioned them into the hands of Israel's army in the capital city. Now again, you and I would, if we could write the story, we'd probably write it different than it ends. You and I would write it so that these men are annihilated, both them, their horses, and their chariots. And I'm sure that's what the king of Israel was thinking would happen as well. Notice verse 21. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? And again, just like the servant, the king of Israel here, is often, um, uh, he's representing what often you and I do. Um, because we often, it, it might begin with some confusion and some fear and paralysis with our enemies, but after a while, that turns into anger. And those who oppose us, those who speak evil of us, 
those who are after us, seeking to do us harm, to do us in, ultimately those become the objects of our wrath and our anger. Like the king of Israel, we are seething and we're ready to take vengeance upon those who would oppose us. And if we had the chance like he appears to have here, we would gladly and readily take them out if we could. Think about how many times you and I have run these kind of scenarios and battles in our own minds. So we pin someone against the wall and tell them off and tell them what we really think. And, and they're forced to hear that and all of a sudden they, we transform them or change them through our anger. We, we've all thought this way. We've all done, done damage and, done, and, and, and exacted our vengeance in our minds against those who have opposed us. And just like Elisha's servant, this king of Israel, although it says that he saw them, he could not see. He also was blind. And he only had vision for his plan of vengeance and anger and wrath. But he was blind to God's glorious vision of mercy and kindness towards his enemies. See, God had something greater in mind. God's plan all along was to show both Syria and Israel that he is a God of mercy and kindness. God wants our enemies to see his undeserved mercy and kindness. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me to be the agents of that mercy and that kindness. Notice that it starts again. It all begins with prayer. This is the third time that Elisha will pray. Notice what happened back in verse 20. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, Oh, Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they might see. You guys, Elisha prayed for his enemies. Elisha prayed that their eyes would be open. Yes, open to their sin, open to the, the, the craziness of their situation and the, the, the desperation that they were now in, the, the turning of the tables and all that. But ultimately, he was praying that their eyes would be open so that they would see and experience God's amazing mercy and kindness. Jesus calls us to do the same thing, to pray for enemies. Notice Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. Now realize what it took Elisha for, for him to pray for his enemies. Elisha had been gravely sinned against and these Syrians, though they were Israel's enemy, they had become Elisha's personal enemies. And just a few hours ago, they were intent on taking him captive or worse and doing damage and evil to him, harm to him. To be able to pray for his enemies, Elisha had to, to be at a place of forgiveness, a place where he was able not only to absorb the original wrong done to him at Dothan, but also that he, a willingness to die and put to death any chance of vengeance or wrath or retribution that he might take out on them. This forgiveness is a dying. It's a dying not only to what was originally done to you, but, but a dying to what you could do, what you might feel you deserve to do. So Elisha was able to forgive his enemies. Elisha was able to pray for his enemies. And now Elisha was in a position where God could use him and the king of Israel to be agents of blessing to their enemies. Notice verse 22. And Elisha answered the king of Israel and said, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? 
He's saying, you've taken these guys prisoner. And normally you don't kill people like that. You, you actually end up extending mercy, even as you subjugate them as prisoners or keep them in your kingdom. He says, instead, I want you to set water, bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And this is, um, this is amazing. There's an amazing resemblance to Romans chapter 12. Listen to Romans chapter 12. Here's Paul speaking. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is re- uh, written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As Paul penned Romans 12, he no doubt had Proverbs 25, 21, and 22 on his mind. Notice the proverb. It says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord will reward you. Now, now we get to a place where the king of Israel's eyes are beginning to be opened and he can now become an agent of blessing toward his enemies. Notice verse 23. And so the king of Israel prepared for them a great feast. He prepared for them a great feast. Instead of the bare minimum, instead of just rations of bread and water and then get out of here, no, the king of Israel spared no expense. And here's the amazing part of the story. In the beginning of the story, the king of Syria spares no expense and he puts all of his army forward to do Elisha harm. And now here, the king of Israel spares no expense and overwhelms his enemies with mercy and kindness by throwing a giant party, a lavish banquet. What an amazing turn. With God's sovereign help, Elisha and the king of Israel were able to surround. They surrounded their enemy and they overwhelmed their enemy with mercy and kindness. And it's here, smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament, that we're seeing the gospel put on display. Notice Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 8. In Christ, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. He lavished on us. While we were the enemies of Christ, while we were his enemies, opposing him, speaking evil of him, rebelling against him, attacking him, dishonoring him, in his grace, Jesus surrounded us in his incarnation and he overwhelmed us with mercy and kindness. And he provided the most amazing feast. Romans 5.10 While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus provided the most amazing feast. He gave himself. He gave us himself. He gave his body to be our food, and he gave his blood, spilt that out for our drink, and he fed us the most amazing feast that we could ever have that would lead ultimately to our salvation. And when we come to the Lord's table, this is what we're reenacting. This is what we're remembering. It's as if the feast is being laid out before us, that reminder, and we're partaking of that feast. While we were yet his enemies, Christ was feasting us. And now Jesus is calling you and he's calling me. to. He's saying, go and do likewise. Do what I have done for you. The mercy and the kindness that you received from me, I want you to be agents of that, of mercy and that kindness. My mercy and my kindness. And I want you to take it to your enemies. Notice how the verse 
finishes up. So the king of Israel prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. The story ends with this note. The Syrians no longer conducted raids on Israel. There would be war later on, much later. Not too much later, but later. But, but something amazing had happened here. Something amazing had happened. There was now peace between Israel and Syria. Think back to Proverbs 25 and notice the, 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 the verse, verse 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head. And the Lord, Yahweh, will reward you. You see, surrounding and overwhelming our enemies with his, God's mercy and kindness carries tremendous power with it. There is tremendous power, power to convict and power to transform. And that's the idea behind the burning coals, that that this conviction, this burning of conviction and conscience that brings sorrow, sorrow ultimately that leads to repentance and to repentance that ultimately leads to salvation. That's what can happen when we, when we lavish kindness and mercy on our enemies. There is amazing power to transform anyone who would oppose us. And not only that, but it brings us blessing and reward. It says, for the Lord will reward you. Israel experienced part of that reward in the peace that they had with Syria. But there's, there's something deeper. There's this, there's this reward of coming into an ex, the experience of Jesus himself, of being able to walk and, and, and being able to, to give that mercy and that kindness away and to share in, and taste what it, what it must be like to be in Christ's footsteps and to see that, that, that miracle take place among our enemies and then to engage in that peace that we can have with them. This is all what God wants you and I to see this morning. This is what he wanted the king of Israel to see. You see, we're so often convinced that our anger and that our strong words and that our sinful schemes will somehow accomplish the righteousness of God. But we forget that it is the kindness of the Lord, often working through us, that leads to repentance and to salvation. God is more powerful than our enemies and he's always present with us. And because of that, we we need never, ever fear, no matter who is in front of us, no matter who is opposing us or attacking us. God sovereignly controls our enemies to accomplish His glorious purposes. And so we stand in awe. We can stand back and just watch and pray that God's plan would be accomplished and that our enemies' plans would be thwarted as He moves and directs to accomplish His perfect plan. And God wants us to see that He wants to use us to surround and to overwhelm our enemies with his mercy and his kindness. And so we needn't anymore respond in anger or with vengeance. But we can go on the offensive. You and I can attack our enemies. We can engage our enemies with God's mercy and with God's kindness and overwhelm and surround them with that mercy and that kindness. That that mercy and kindness that you and I have received. Let's pray that God will help us to do that. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you so much for the power of your word. It is living and these are stories we could never write, but you have ordained this history. You've, you've, you've moved in such a way that, that we can see the past and just marvel at your hand 
at the stories you've woven together, at the events that you've brought to pass, at the, at the things that you're teaching us, Lord. Lord, you're teaching us so much here. We needn't fear. We can stand in awe. We can go on the offensive with love and mercy because of who you are, because you are an awesome God who is greater than our enemies and present with us, who sovereignly controls them in, in, in your hands and who ultimately is using us What a privilege, Lord. What a blessing that we can enter into this opportunity to to be used by you. Lord, help us to engage, help us to walk out of this determined to engage those who oppose us with this love and with the power of the gospel. And Lord, for those of us who, those who are here this morning might not know you, Lord, who are here, I pray for them. I pray that if there's anyone here who still is an enemy of you, Lord, who is actively opposing you, who's speaking evil against you, who's not submitting their life to you, who is running away from you, I pray that you would open their eyes and that you would show them that you are an amazing God. You are a God who has lavished and overwhelmed them and surrounded them with your mercy and your kindness. I pray that they would respond to that and embrace you, submit themselves to you as the Lord of the universe, the God of all mercy and kindness. Lord, help us to live this out. Give us eyes that continue to see this as we walk out of here. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.